Welcome to the Sunshine Bridge, a new show which highlights the diverse perspectives of Louisianians and the work of those who serve their community. I'm Elizabeth Eads. A new Indian mound has been discovered in a subdivision off of Tiger Bend Road where new houses are being constructed. It's a small mound, but the efforts for its preservation shows a shift in attitude and intention of respect toward Louisiana's indigenous perspectives. The Cachata tribe in Louisiana were one of the numerous tribes who were consulted upon the mound's discovery. I spoke with Raynella Fontenot and Linda Langley, who represent the Cachata, about the mound's preservation and its treatment. We first learned about this from the state archaeologist, Chip McGimsey, who brought it to our attention. It's always a little bit you know, more complicated situation when the property is owned privately. And in this case, development was planned. And that is always sort of a red flag as well for us. But um, we have an excellent relationship with the state archaeologist. And so he's very proactive and reaches out to us. And he brought it to our attention. It's now several years. We were trying to remember. But when it first, the uh, development concept first came up, he brought it to us. And we and other federal tribes began, uh, you know, consulting on this right away in terms of how to protect the site, the archeological site and the mound itself. And of course, still respect the wishes of the landowner. How long ago was it that, that you found out about it? At least three years, maybe yes. four years. Three to four years, at least. Um, we were actually able to visit the site. So a lot of the times we get to uh, we're invited to go and visit and look around at the site and the archaeologists will show us around and make sure that everything is done appropriately and respectfully. How, how is it that you view the mound? Because it's something from that's, that's from a culture that may predate yours. Even if the mound is predating um, the descendants, we still value them and consider them highly sacred. So we still give them the respect and appropriate ways of understanding them and protection and just different things in those terms culturally that make it significant, not to just our tribe, but to all tribes. So that, you know, we're here, we're still around so that we can oversee these things and protect what our ancestors have made and built and we just like to continue that okay how is it that it works with all of the tribes coming together do the tribes have to have like a consensus or how does that how does that work so I am not Kushada, I'm married into the tribe, but, uh, and I serve at the, you know, as the tribal historic preservation officer. What I've been the most impressed by in the, I don't even know now, 20 or 30 years since I've been involved in this is the way that the tribes respect each other. And in the Southeast, there's um, a consensus. There's a, actually a coalition of tribes um, that meet regularly in the pandemic, of course, by Zoom, but usually several times a year in person as well. Um, and the agreement among them is, is just amazing to see that 
as Renella said, these are somebody's ancestors. And they're, um, it may be difficult to say if they were specifically Kushada or Choctaw or one of the other Muscogean groups, but they're all cousin tribes and they're, they're, these are shared ancestors. And if we are closest geographically and can get there more easily than someone, um, we often will. We'll share knowledge. Um, and there's been an amazing determination to, to have this kind of consensus to defer to other tribes when it's you know, appropriate or necessary, but to work together to protect these archeological sites, these historical legacies and, and the ancestors themselves in the case of actual NAGPRA uh, human remains or, or associated funerary objects or traditional cultural sites that we, all the tribes will work together to the best of their ability. Nobody is served by allowing damage or some kind of, uh, I hate to use the word desecration, but, and this is, you know, you see this to me, even in the non-native world, uh, in terms of people's respect for, you know, the national archives or the tomb of the unknown soldier, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, people may come from around the world that may not be their ancestors that are buried there, but there's a determination to protect and respect and work together. And so that's, um, we've really set aside those kind of, uh, I hate to say Western, but those kind of, well, was it, you know, can you make a, a positive cultural affiliation? Yes, we can. It was ancestors to all the people. I'm a little bit curious about the, um, you know, just the relationship with the archaeologists, just because when I have talked with archaeologists, my understanding is that they're, well, for such a long time, uh, archaeologists were going in and digging without asking questions. And now that is beginning to change, or at least it has been changing for the past 20 years or so. How do you view the archaeological digs? What makes for a good experience with that? We've actually come across some changes in the archaeological field. So I think the mentality is shifting toward reaching out to each indigenous community that it may be linked to. So then we're, we're on the end of seeing great changes coming. And now that things are shifting, it's been a pleasure to work with some of these archaeologists and these state archaeologists just across the board because their mentality is focused on indigenous perspectives now. So we actually appreciate that. And when they do that, we are glad to step in and give whatever knowledge we can share. Um, there are sometimes that knowledge is not allowable to be shared to outsiders. But when we can share that, um, it actually opens the eyes of these archaeologists and helps them see things from an indigenous perspective. Are you able to speak to any of the reasons why outsiders aren't allowed to, to know certain things? I mean, I understand it's private, but, you know, and I don't want to... Um, on those private matters, it's usually traditional cultural um, either ceremonial, you know, ceremonial ways, those types of things is not usually shared with anyone outside of the tribe, just generally. Those, you know, we, we don't really speak of um, outside of 
homes a lot of times. What is it that creates the most interest for a tribe in an archaeological dig? I was actually talking with another tribe and and I, I was told that, that this particular mound wasn't something that really registered. They saw whatever they saw and they said, oh, okay, that's fine. What creates interest for you in an archaeological dig? I, I, that question's a little more complicated. I think some of the aspects or some of the elements are areas of interest. The Cushada tribe of Louisiana has started a, a long partnership, as Ranella was talking about, with the Public Archaeology Lab at UL Lafayette and several other universities. And the Cushadas were always diplomatic people, often moved ahead of conflicts in the region, uh, encroachment by settlers. As a result, their quote unquote footprint for archaeologists or on maps is very limited and they tend to be left out of the history book or the historical narrative completely. And so for us, knowing where the Kushada, when we have those oral traditions and we have place names and, and so on, but it gets us to within maybe three to five miles of an actual village site, but we know where those are. And having worked with you know, UL Lafayette and other archeologists and explained, shown them the maps, shown them the documents, the kind of looking for archeological types or an assemblage, a certain temper uh, of pottery, then we may be looking at things within where we know the Kushada were at certain points in time. And other tribes may be aware they weren't anywhere near there and they have less interest in it. It's, it's not a, again, to, not, you know, to beat that point, but it's not so much the Western concept of the stuff or the, you know, even the construction of the mound or something like that. It's the people, what were they doing there? What was important to them? What are the living descendants tasked with protecting? Often where the goal of the archaeologist, either because of potential damage or destruction, it may be, you know, obviously to excavate. But sometimes it's not that priority for the living descendants. They may have a whole different scope of work concept, or they may define a site differently. We're working on another project, and thankfully, the Army Corps of Engineers and other places, even Moundville now, reaching out to tribes, we can define sometimes the uh, mound or the shell midden is viewed as the site, but we know there were connections between that roads, uh, canals, or the living spaces themselves may have surrounded. They may have been on that mound, that may be a burial mound, but they may have surrounded that mound. And so we may look at what other people say is, well, that isn't even the site. Yes, it is. <laughs> we, we know what from the, again, from the traditions, from the oral traditions, what we're told was happening in a place like that. And so we may, you know, maybe a difference between tribes, between regions, between family groups, or just a particular tribe like ours that has been tasked with a different set of constructs. But it's very, it's very much bigger than, than just, well, what, you know, if it's lithics, is that too early? Or 
are you looking in the history? It's a much bigger picture than that. Whenever I went down to the mound, you know, I saw uh, the Amy River that's just right by there. And I, it's, it's just funny because whenever I was there, I just remember thinking, oh, wow, this was definitely like a stop. There were canoes that were coming in and out of here and everything. And just thinking about that. How do you preserve something like that when you know what the that the mound is only part of it and then you have development going on on both sides of it because at this point there's going to be houses on one side houses on the other side and you have this one green space how do you determine the amount of space that is to be preserved that kind of thing that's the big question really i don't think there's any one answer to that Uh, I was actually listening to a podcast with an engineer who was a big instrumental, I think, in uh, designing the highway system, called the interstate highway system. And they asked him, you know, what was the most difficult part? Was it preserving archaeological sites? Was it mountains, rivers, crossing things, blasting things? He said it was avoiding cemeteries, (laughs) which you'd never think of, right? So some things you do expect to be preserved exactly intact and others, you know, in the history of the world, civilizations settle where others have often for similar reasons of access. Sometimes we just know you can't preserve everything, but as much as you can, the site reports, the photographs, the maps, um, in this case with this mound, the green space, the signage, the expectation of respect. Like you, one of the things I often ask the archeologists to look for is the, the age of the growth of the trees and an estimate of where the canoes would have been put in and taken out of the water. And there's just no way probably to preserve quote unquote that because how, how can you justify stopping you know, from a private landowner? Like, You want me to not build where they put their canoes in the water, but at least we can record things like that and be able to preserve it in some other way and and teach it to the youth and the young people and and have some respect for this site. This this is really almost, um, it's one of the better ones that we see because it has been proactive from the start in that regard. Right, because we have the whole thing with the LSU mounds. I don't know if anyone wants to speak to any of that, or I think one of the reasons why, why you know, the rolling down the hills happens or the mounds happens is because no one has said, no one has said, don't do that, or I don't know if that's okay or not, or I still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, we just in the last two years, I mean, we've been consulting probably about the same amount of time as we, we have been on this site with, the, with LSU and the state archeologist. And at times that's gone well, but I think there's such a strong non-indigenous perspective and culture of how the mounds are viewed in relation to football and the university and traditions that we are, there, there's quite a bit of concern among the, the Southeastern tribes. It's been brought up repeatedly. We've actually sent letters to the university and the state archaeologist and copied everyone and um, 
the most recent ice storm and the sledding down the hills was, you know, really a, a very concerning because it seems to indicate that the culture of protection and respect is not happening in quite the way that, or speed that we would like it to. So I think there are a lot of tribes that are very concerned about the LSU mounts, their, their age, their, their, you know, there's so much that needs to be protected there. They are clearly unique, maybe. I mean, I, I can't say enough about how much need there is for, for that culture to change. Recently, we did have a phone call with um, someone in a position to, to really begin to enact some of that change. I'm hopeful that LSU is maybe starting to look at this differently, but uh, if we could even get them to where the Tiger Bend situation is, I think we would breathe a lot easier. So you think the Tiger Bend situation is a much better situation? And I guess I tell, me, tell me why it's a better situation. Comparing it to the LSU mounds, there's a lot of room for improvement as far as education and advocacy. We would like for all the tribes to be heard. Um, I think with the Tiger Bend mound, they actually did proactively reach out to all the tribes that had interest in that section of Louisiana. Um, and I know that LSU has a large tradition with gaming and football. So I, I feel that we could still reach those people and educate them as well, but we just haven't gotten to that point yet. Speaking about the, the mound at Tiger Bend, um, how would you like it to be treated? Because again, it's a small mound, you know, is it okay to walk on it at all? Is it okay to picnic there? Because it's also a green space. So where do you consider the boundaries to be for that? We were always taught growing up that, um, or more or less forbidden to walk on the mounds because you don't really know what would be under the earth there. The mounds put there for a reason and the reason may be unknown, but we would be respectful and not um, disrespect that space by walking on them. Thank you ladies so much. You're welcome. Thank you <laughs> you know, they, they don't say goodbye, so we'll say atoklama till next time. Right. Awesome. Atoklama. <laughs> awesome. Atoklama. <laughs> this is the Sunshine Bridge, a new show which highlights the diverse perspectives of those in the Louisiana area and the work of those who serve their community. It would be great to hear from you. You can email the show at thesunshinebridge at gmail.com. Special thanks to Chip McGimsey, Malcolm Schumann, and Pat Arnold for sharing their knowledge of the topic with me. Also thanks and special dedication of the show to Scott, whose friendship and support helped to make this show and interview a reality. The music you're hearing is by Arnav Srivastav. I'm Elizabeth Eads, keep shining. Mm -hmm.